I'm going to read a scripture to you, okay? Come on down. You're welcome to. Come on. All right, here's my scripture I'm going to read to you. You guys listening? It says, In a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. So do you know what happened? So the Apostle Paul, he had a vision, like a dream. There wasn't really a man there, but he saw this man in a dream or a vision. And the man was across the sea a long ways away. And Paul didn't know the man. And Paul wasn't planning on going to see that man or anybody in that place where that man lived. In fact, Paul was going to go the exact opposite direction. But he had this vision. God gave it to him. And Paul changed his plans to obey God. Do you know that sometimes God changes our plans? Sometimes you have a plan that you know what you're going to do. Like maybe you've got your day all planned out. You know what games you're going to play. You know who you're going to play with. Maybe you're going to go to your cousin's house. You're going to go to your friend's house. You're going to go someplace. But sometimes God changes our plans. And sometimes that's upsetting for us. But do you know what? When God changes our plans, God always has a reason for changing our plans. And it's always a good reason, even if we don't know why. And so this man was way across the sea, and he needed help. And maybe he heard of Christians, or maybe he heard, I don't know if he knew Paul or knew of Paul, But you know what this man did? He prayed to God and he said, God, I need help. I need someone to help us and to help our people. And God heard his prayer and God gave Paul that vision and sent Paul all the way across the sea to help this man. And do you know, Paul obeyed God. Paul changed his plans, obeyed God, went the other direction and went and helped those people in this land called Macedonia. It's a real place. It still exists today. And do you know, as a result of Paul being obedient to God, do you know that the world was changed? Do you know how God changes the world? Through our obedience. And we might think of being obedient and doing like great things, like sailing on a ship across the sea, to help a bunch of people. But do you know where our obedience begins? Right here. Right here in our heart. Right where we live. Do you know there's a scripture that says, Children, obey your parents. For this is right. How does it go? But it tells you, children, obey your parents. Yeah, so do you know how you will change the world? Do you know how you're going to change the world? By beginning with obeying your parents. Did you know that? That you can change the world really and truly, but you've got to begin by obeying your parents. You've got to start right where you are. 
And if you will obey God every day, and that involves obeying your parents, right? If you'll obey God every day and everything that you do, your world will be changed, and so will the world of others. Our world would be changed. So do you want to be a world changer? Who wants to be a world changer? Who wants to be a world? Do you want to be a world changer? It's a good thing to be. Come on, raise your hand. You want to be a world changer? Let's be a world changer. Then let's be obedient to God. Let's obey our parents or let's obey God. And if we do that, God will use us to change the world, just like he did the Apostle Paul. That's good news, okay? All right, you ready to hear the rest of the story? Okay, come on, go back to your seat, and I'll tell you the rest of the story now. I'm not Paul Harvey, but I am going to tell you the rest of the story. All right. Do you know that God is writing his story? Remember what I always say? History is his story, and God is writing his story. And God alone knows all of the twists and turns and detours that he has embedded in his story. And you know every good story has a twist and a turn that we can't see coming. We watch a good movie or we watch, read a good book, and it's like, man, it was so good. I didn't, I didn't see that twist coming. I didn't see that turn. And we say, that's good. That's a good story. Well, who is the author? God is the author. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. God is the best author, the best storyteller. So every good story has twists and turns and detours embedded in the story. We come to know them when we must navigate those twists and turns and detours in our own journey through life. Sometimes we can see the road ahead and we can plan accordingly, but much, if not most of the time, God has twists and turns that he has not revealed to us, and we don't know them until we come upon them or they come upon us. Sometimes God has a complete change of direction for us that we did not see coming or we could not even imagine. Very often, God conceals those plans until we have a need to know. This is what God did with the Apostle Paul when he sent Paul west, when Paul wanted to go east. Acts chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. Now, 16, verses 6 through 10. Acts 16, verses 6 through 10. Now, when they had gone through... Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, after he had 
Seeing the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of that gospel to save us and to change the world. And truly it has. We ask God that you would take this gospel and you would change us day by day, moment by moment. Transform us, conform us to the very image of the Son of God. That we would be a people filled with your glory, revealing you and your hope and your gospel to the world around us. That men would see that there is hope and only one hope and that hope is in Jesus. Father, we ask this, that you would be glorified through your church, through our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So you see in this record here, this encounter that Paul had with God, that as Paul is making his way, and if, if I don't know how well you know geography, if, if you know where Macedonia is, it's, it's where modern-day Greece is. Macedonia is, you've got the Greek peninsula and Macedonia is up here. It's still a region that exists on our maps today. And across the Aegean Sea there is Turkey. And the peninsula there where the western side of Asia comes into the Aegean, the Mediterranean Sea. And Paul had gone up from Antioch and he was headed northwest right to the southern part of the Black Sea and then he was going to go east and go up along the southern coast of the Black Sea. But all along the way as Paul leaves Antioch and he goes to Derby and Lystra and he visits those churches that are there and he's making his way and God won't let him go into that other part of Asia and God keeps him going and he gets up there and he's going to go over here to the east, and when he gets up there to this, to this place called Mysia, bordering on this other place called Bithynia, God says, no, Paul, and he gives Paul a vision, and Paul sees a man of Macedonia. Macedonia is across the sea in Greece, and this man is calling for Paul to come and help them, and Paul realized that the Holy Spirit forbidding them to go certain places all along the way was God leading him and directing him. And when Paul wanted to go east and follow the coast of the Black Sea up into Bithynia, God says no and he gives him a vision and he says, you're not going to go east, you're going to go west. And Paul goes to Troas, a city, a port city on the Aegean Sea there. And he gets on a ship and he goes across to Macedonia. And the rest is history. Literally. This record of an encounter the Apostle Paul had with God has had a most profound impact on the world. And this, this is Paul's second missionary journey. Paul took three, and then his final journey was his ship uh, sailing to Rome. And he stayed in Rome until his execution. This was Paul's second missionary journey. And as the Spirit is guiding, Paul is making his way north and west with the purpose of turning east to preach. But God, that was Paul's plan, but, but God 
had a different plan. And when Paul set out, God didn't tell Paul what the plan was. Paul just set out with a plan, and it was a good plan, and it was a godly plan. And God didn't tell Paul exactly what was going to happen. He led him by the Spirit, so the Spirit forbid them. What does that mean? Did Paul hear a voice from heaven? Were doors closed? The Bible doesn't tell us, but the Bible does tell us that Paul knew that the Spirit of God was not allowing him to go certain places, that he obviously wanted to go, and the Spirit forbid him. And he gets to another place, and some of the manuscripts say the Spirit of Jesus would not allow Paul to go to a certain place. And Paul is there, and then all of a sudden he has this vision of this man of Macedonia, and Paul then knows why God had been forbidding him all along the way. Because Paul's plan was to go up and turn east, and then he realized that God was going to take him west. To this point, Paul had not preached out of Asia. He had made a trek up through Asia and back down to Antioch, but he had not gone to Greece yet. There was still work to do in Asia, but God said it was time, and it was Paul's plan to go one place, but it was God's plan to go another place. Paul had one plan, but God had another, one much more grand than Paul's plan. The Spirit did not permit them to go east. Instead, they were directed west to the port city of Troas. And while in Troas, Paul had this this vision, this experience that not only changed his life, but it literally changed the world. Do you know, changing the world is as simple as our obedience to God. For a child, it may be obey your parents. For you, it may be get up and go to church when you don't feel like it. For you, it may be pray, read your Bible, do the things that God is convicting you, prompting you to do, but you're too busy or you don't feel like it or you have all these excuses as to why you can't. But obedience says, obey. We teach our kids words to live by in first fruits in school. And one of them is, don't whine, don't complain, don't make excuses, sir. Jesus didn't say that. The Apostle Paul didn't say that. John Wooden said that, a famous basketball coach. But it's a word to live by. And the church has got to stop making excuses and begin to obey God because that's how we're going to see our world change. That's how you're going to see your world change. God gave Paul a vision of a man of Macedonia pleading for Paul to come and help. Paul was forbidden by the Holy Spirit to go one direction and preach the word. Not that preaching the word over there would have been wrong, but it wasn't the plan of God. And we can do good things, even godly things. But if it's not God's plan, if it's not what God's called us to do and where God's called us to do it, then we're in disobedience no matter how good or how godly our plan might be. And if Paul would have said, no, God, I'm going to go east along the southern coast of the Black Sea, and I'm going to go up here to Bithynia, and I'm going to preach your gospel, he would have been in disobedience to God, and he would have been in sin, even though what he wanted to do was a good thing. And sometimes we need to quit using good things as reasons and excuses for not obeying God. 
Thus the gospel went west into the Greek peninsula and ultimately into the Roman Empire and up into Europe. And the world as we have come to know it today is the result of that simple act of obedience. It is the person of Jesus Christ that has literally changed the world and has indeed made all things new. It is the birth of Christ, Christ's life, Christ's death, Christ's resurrection, and the ascension of Christ through which all the promises of God to his people are secured. The apostle Paul was simply being obedient to the command of the risen and glorified Jesus. Paul was doing exactly what we are all commanded to do. What we are all commanded to be doing every day. Walking in obedience to the call of Christ and trusting Him to use our lives for His glory as we offer up ourselves to Him as living sacrifices each and every day. It is the willing obedience of God's people that has made a world of difference, literally. How many times have we had our own plan only to have circumstances or situations change that plan? We call it coincidence. We call it an accident. We call it whatever. Let's call it what it is. It's the providence of God. This happens all the time in small ways. But sometimes it happens in ways larger than we like. And in ways that are less than comfortable than we like. And even in ways that are radically life-altering or even tragic. Most of us are not like the Apostle Paul in that we are free to go wherever the wind of the Spirit blows us. We have roots. We're planted, growing, and building lives. We have families and friends and responsibilities. As we all know, that does not exempt us from change or a change of direction in the plans or the dreams we may have formulated for our own lives. One thing is for certain, and that is change is constant. Change comes mostly in small ways, growing into bigger things. Think about children or think about trees that change over time. And how do they change? They change through constant small changes that are happening all the time, but they're so small, they're so unnoticeable that we just look over them. Constant small changes that are not obvious obvious to us grow into the things that become obvious. This is why the scripture teaches us that if we are faithful over small things, God will make us master over greater things. Again, God pays attention to the small things and we should be no different. We are tempted to ignore small things for the great things. When I ask the children, do you want to change the world? How many, how many of us thought of, of, we had visions of great things happening, big events that people write books about or that get headlines in newspapers or on the news. 
But that's not really how the world has changed. The world is not changed through big events. The world is changed through small events that turn into big events. There is no big event that is nothing more than the accumulation of all the small events that brought the big event to pass. And while we spend our lives focused on the big event, waiting for the big event, wanting to be a part of the big event, we're not paying attention to all the small things that are passing by, moment by moment by moment, that are turning into the things that we don't know, that we can't see because we're not paying attention. But God pays attention to the small things. And this is exactly why we should as well. There is nothing great that is not a collection of small things that simply became great. We are commanded to be a ready people, ready for whatever or wherever God's plan and purpose brings us. Sometimes God disrupts our lives with radical change. In those times when we are not prepared for the kind of change we could not see coming, we can be assured that God has sufficient grace for us. Whether we feel it or not, His grace is always sufficient. Even when that grace seems far away, it is never far, but always near and ever-present, abiding in us to carry us through whatever place and whatever purpose God has for us, whether He has warned us or whether it comes as a complete surprise to us. It is God's grace given to us in Jesus that has changed us in everything around us has changed, is changing, and will continue to change. We live in a world, in a nation, that is what it is because of the gospel. There are many people alive today in America who do not know this, who do not understand this, thus the problems we are seeing in our nation today. Most Americans, especially the current generations, do not know the world that was and that and that is a tragedy that is producing more tragedy. People that do not know the world that was are not prepared for the world that will be. For if we do not learn from our history, we will be doomed to repeat the very same mistakes that produced that history or on the positive side, if we do know our history, we can be doomed to repeat the very good things that prevented us from experiencing the tragedies and the hardships and the hard times. Here's a quote from a historian named Christopher Wright. He says, All nations of the world were created by Yahweh. Stand under His government in their historical affairs, are accountable to him morally and especially for the doing of justice. Like Israel, however, all nations have fallen short of the glory of God and stand in the same default position under God's judgment. That judgment will come as surely as the nations as it fell on Israel. But beyond judgment, there is hope. For there is always hope with the God of Israel. If our only hope 
is learning from our past mistakes and trying to, to direct our technology and our knowledge today into better, more positive things, then we don't have any hope. Because everything we have came from God. Everything we have came from God. The world, we should not expect the world to know this or the world to believe this. But we absolutely should expect the church to know this and the church to believe this and the church to live like they believe it. If the gospel has changed the world for good, and it has, a lack of the gospel allows the world to remain unchanged or to regress for evil. Nations that reject the gospel historically suffer in its void. The curse that comes from a rejection of the gospel is the consequence that will judge that nation. Just as we, in our acceptance of the gospel, have been blessed as a nation beyond what we can imagine, our rejection of the gospel will bring about the very curse the gospel has delivered us from. The gospel will never cease to do its good work, even in the ebb and flow of history. The promise of God is that his government and peace are ever increasing. If you think about who we are today, my father, who is now in heaven, fought in World War II. That was only... 80 years ago, that's less than a century. And when we think about where we've come as a world and as a nation, we stand head and shoulders above the generations before us in so many ways. But that does not mean we cannot fall. The progress of the gospel will never cease, but it can and it does ebb and flow in the lives of peoples and in the lives of nations. And right now, we're seeing the ebb of the gospel in our nation. We're seeing our nation retreat from the gospel. We're seeing our nation in many ways reject the gospel that gave us the freedom and the liberty and the blessings that we take for granted every day and we take them for granted every day because they are too many to know. They're too many to count. They're too many to notice. This is the world we live in. Something as simple as Paul having a vision some 2,000 years ago and going west instead of east has literally changed the world that we live in. So radically that we can't even begin to imagine the world in any other way than the way we know it. But it wasn't always like this. What determines the ebb and flow comes down to the choices we all make. Every day, nations are simply the sum total of its people. Every day those people make choices and every day those choices determine the course of nations. 
The collection of people that make a nation are the collection of individual lives and individual choices. And every day, people living everyday lives, making everyday choices, that is what makes a nation. That is what makes our nation. That is what changes the world for good or for evil. Our choices produce our leaders and sets the course of our history. In just a matter of days, we'll be able to vote. Next Tuesday, in fact, you'll be able to early vote. Leading up to November 3rd, when you will vote for the next leader of your country, the next president of the United States. And something as simple as a vote can change the course of history. It has. It has in the past, and it still does. But it's not just the act of voting. It's understanding what that means. It's understanding what that privilege, what that liberty, what that choice means. And the implications it could have. Just like teaching our children to obey their parents. It sounds so simple. It sounds so innocent. It sounds so cliche. And we laugh at our kids when we see them disobey sometimes and we snicker trying not to let our kids see us laugh because they're so cute sometimes in their disobedience. But, but the reality is disobedience is never a laughing matter. Because what's, what's cute and funny today turns into nations running off the rails and, and living and making policies and murdering tens of millions of its babies on the altar of abortion and calling it good and calling it God and calling it everything except what we should call it sin. We change the world by beginning with our obedience. This is why we're commanded by the Bible to train up our children in the way that they should go. It's okay, we can laugh, we can snicker sometimes when we take that deep sigh and that deep breath and realize, oh, my kids were just in there eating candy. They weren't drowned in the pond or abducted by the pedophile. But those things really do happen. And no obedience really is simple. Just simple. We say simple obedience. I say simple obedience. Obedience is not always simple. Not even for the youngest of us. In fact, it can be very hard. And some of the things that we laugh about and think, oh, if only... That's what I was struggling with in terms of obedience, whether to have bubble gum or, or, or no bubble gum, whether to eat my broccoli or, or, or my candy. But you do realize that the things you struggle with today as adults in being obedient to God began with those points of obedience when you were children. And the reason that we are commanded to raise our children in that way is so that we raise up adults that understand the importance of obeying God, who understand the blessings that come to an individual life, 
that come to a family, that come to a community, that come to a nation because that nation has chosen in their everyday acts of obedience that the Lord will be the God of our nation and we will walk in obedience to him. And so they experience the blessings of obedience to God. This is America. This is the nation, the land that we live in now. And we have lived under that blessing for so long that we don't know what, what life looks like without it. But we're beginning to find out. And we've closed our eyes and we've turned our gaze away and we, we don't want to look at certain things and we don't want to deal with certain things because they're too ugly, they're too uncomfortable, they're too controversial. We'll just ignore it and pretend like it doesn't exist and maybe it will go away. But guess what? Those things don't go away. Those little decisions to, to turn our gaze away and pretend like it doesn't exist, that little decision allowed that thing to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And now we are all living in the room with the elephant and nobody knows what to do with the elephant. Nobody wants to talk about the elephant. We don't know how to get rid of the elephant, so let's just keep pretending like the elephant doesn't exist. But we can't do that. God has given us his word and his wisdom. If we choose to follow it, our history will reflect that in his blessing. If we choose to reject it, our hist history will reflect that in our eventual curse and demise. Yes, there are great men who do great things, just like the Apostle Paul. But when you consider history, they are the exception. All the great people written about in all the history books throughout all the world are a drop in the bucket compared to all the people that have lived on this earth. Whatever influence those great men and their great deeds had on history, they had on everyday people. And it's the people and the masses who are the countless, nameless faces of those who ultimately make our history worth writing and set the course of nations that do great things for the glory of God. It's through their simple choices every day. It's through their obedience every day or their disobedience every day. From the, his book, What's So Great About Christianity, Dinesh D'Souza makes this statement about Christianity's influence upon the world. Quote, Christianity is responsible for the way our society is organized and for the way we currently live. So extensive is the Christian contribution to our laws, our economics, our politics, our arts, our calendar, our holidays, and our moral and cultural priorities that historian J.M. Robers writes in The Triumph of the West, we could none of us today be what we are if a handful of Jews nearly 2,000 years ago had not believed that they had known a great teacher, seen him crucified, dead, and buried, and then risen again. Jesus, walking the seashore, says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And in that instant, Peter, James, and John have to decide, are we going to keep fishing for fish or are we going to follow this rabbi? Who is this guy? I don't know, but let's take a chance and let's follow Jesus. Their 
active obedience is the reason we're having this talk today. We would not be having it otherwise. That act of obedience that they could never have seen in their wildest imaginations, they could never have dreamed what that act of obedience would turn into. But yet here we are today. In his article titled, Nietzsche Was Right, Tim Keller makes this statement. The central values and priorities of modern Western secular culture have actually come from Christianity. And even now, when most of the educated classes have abandoned Christianity and when religion is in sharp decline among the populace, Christianity has such an enduring pervasive influence that we cannot condemn the church for its failures without invoking Christian teaching and beliefs to do so. Keller goes on to describe how Nietzsche saw Christian thought ingrained in those who even rejected Christ and the idea of God. Nietzsche saw that the European intelligentsia rejecting Christianity and styling themselves as, a scientific, as scientific free thinkers, supposedly living without God, but he argued they still believed in human rights in the equal dignity of every person, in the value of the poor and weak, and the necessity of caring and advocating for them all. They still believe that love is the great value and that we should forgive our opponents. They still believed in moral absolutes, that some things are good and some things are evil. He's talking about the people who reject God. And particularly that oppression of the powerless was wrong. But Nietzsche argued, it's these ideas, if all these ideas are unique to Christianity, they didn't develop in Eastern cultures. And the Greeks and the Romans found those, those ideas laughable and incomprehensible when they first heard them. Tom Holland writes a book called Dominion. How Christianity, the revolution of Christianity, remade the world. And Holland shows that the shame and honor cultures of old pagan Europe, of the Anglo-Saxons, the Franks, and the Germans, thought that the Christian ethic of forgiving one's enemies and honoring the poor and the weak to be completely unworkable as a basis for society. These ideas would have never occurred to anyone unless they held to a universe with a single personal God who created all beings in his image and with the Savior who came and died in sacrificial love. The idea only could have grown from such a worldview. They don't make sense in a different one. They didn't make sense before Christianity in the world. If instead we believe we're here by accident through a process of survival of the fittest, then there can be no moral absolutes and life must be, if anything, about power and the mastery of others, not about love. That, declared Nietzsche, is the only way to live once you are fully willing to admit that the Christian God does not exist. Do you see what he saw? The man who coined the phrase, God is dead, that was resurrected and continues to be resurrected. 
He said, if you really believe God is dead, then live like you believe he's dead. Because if he's dead, the reality is he never existed. And we got here by chance, by accident, by survival of the fittest. We didn't get here by loving one another. We didn't get here by coddling the poor and helping the weak. We got here by stomping on the poor and, and eliminating the weak. It's survival of the fittest. When I was in college, I wrote a research paper on social Darwinism. I was not a Christian at that time. And of course, social Darwinism, this is what people kick against when they talk about capitalism. And there is a capitalism that is Darwinistic, but there's also a capitalism that is not like that. There's a biblical capitalism. There's a capitalism that, that inherently works for the benefit of everyone. Do you see that what the atheist says, if you really believe God doesn't exist, then live like it. And you people who say you don't believe in God are living like he really does exist because you're still holding to all the values that came from him. Now, that's an honest atheist right there. And this is what I'm talking about. Christianity has so shaped our worldview. Christianity is so ingrained in the world as we know it. We cannot even imagine a world where it doesn't exist. And we would not want to imagine that world. Before Christianity in the Greco-Roman world, in the pagan cultures before and during that period, the value of human life was very cheap. It is Christianity's impact that changed the value of human life and changed the world. Christianity has completely changed the way we think and look at the world. It has fundamentally changed our worldview. We cannot even begin to comprehend another way of viewing the world that would be considered normal. Let's consider two scriptures, Galatians 3, 26 and 29. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. It's where Paul says in verse 28, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And in Colossians 3, 8 and 11, 3, 8 through 11, Paul writes this. He says, Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. We don't understand what those verses are really saying because we live in a world that has been changed by the gospel. We read those words and we see those terms, but we really have no idea what they really mean and what the implications of what Paul is saying. We don't understand how radical those two statements from those two verses in Galatians and Colossians, we do not understand how radical that was in Paul's day. But I promise you it was radical. Early Christianity elevated the roles of those oppressed in society. They did this by accepting women and slaves as full members. Members of the church come to the table you have the same rights in Christ as anyone else, women and slaves. That's not the way it was in the world back then. Aristotle says women were somewhere between a slave and a free man. They weren't free. They weren't a slave. They're a little above slavery, 
That was the world. This is why people talk about Christianity in such a degrading way, saying that it degrades women. Actually, Christianity is the reason women have rights. Christianity is the reason why women are valued today. Christianity did exactly the opposite of what the world accuses it of doing. And those who used Christianity to oppress others weren't being Christian. They were just simply being oppressive. Slaves participated equally in worship and in the community and were afforded contract and property rights. This was a radical shift away from the way the world historically operated. This change is directly attributed to Christianity and the gospel. God does not value or view us differently in Christ. Therefore, we should value and view one another in Christ the way God does. The gospel, the good news, is that we are all one in Christ. This is why we don't need social justice. The gospel is social justice. The church doesn't need to adopt statements and, and, and appease people and compromise its message. The church just needs to go back to the gospel. Can you imagine if the social justice warriors of today were trying to navigate the ancient world and all that it was 2,000, 3,000 years ago? They, they'd be killed. They, they'd never made it. It was the gospel. It was Christians. It was those believers who literally put their life on the line to say slaves have the same rights as members. Women have the same rights as men. We're all one in Christ. It doesn't matter if you're rich or if you're poor, if you're slave or if you're free. You know what a barbarian was? A barbarian was an outsider. So everyone that was outside of Rome was a barbarian. Same way in Greek. So to be called a barbarian was not a compliment. Let's just put it that way. But you know what's worse than being called a barbarian? A Scythian. Because the Scythians were the worst of the worst, the cruel of the cruel, and to be avoided at all cost. And when someone was labeled a Scythian, that was not a good thing. Paul takes the most derogatory term that, he can, that, that, that exists in his day, and he says there is now neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free, barbarian, Scythian. Paul says in Christ, we're all one. Doesn't matter what you were, now you're a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things become new. The gospel teaches that we have all fallen short of the glory of God, and that we all find ourselves in the same position, eternally separated from God apart from the grace given to us in Jesus. Separation between Jew and Gentile is broken down in Christ. Slaves and women had no or very few rights, but in Jesus they're made one with everyone else. The same with barbarians, Scythians, In Christ, we are one. The gospel shows us that there is no one too low to be brought up into Christ, and there is no one too far away to be brought near by his blood. The message of the gospel is that in Christ we are all one, for Christ is all and in all. This is the gospel that literally has changed and is changing the world. We don't see it today because we live in America. 
And we're in the process of trying to reject the gospel. But you go to China and you go to Africa and you go to what we call the third world. And the wave of revival is there and people are discovering their freedom in Christ. They're discovering in India that it doesn't matter what caste I'm born into. In Christ, we're all one. From the poorest to the richest. And we can't imagine how liberating that is because we already live in a country that has been liberated. And our worldview is one of liberty. To the point that if we are asked to do things we don't like, we feel like our liberties are being trampled on. It is the gospel that gave us the changed world we live in now. If removed, we would return to the world that it delivered us from then. Men are born into sin every day. That means men must be born again and delivered from sin every day. Our laws, our standards, our compassion, and all the things we do to care for others, all the things we have in place to guarantee that all people have equal opportunity are because of the gospel. These graces from God are so a part of the world we have come to know and expect that we shudder to imagine a world without it. And we should. That world that once existed in total still exists in parts of the world. But the gospel is doing its work. And the knowledge of the glory of God is filling the earth even as the waters cover the sea. Yet, it's not full. It's not full yet. There are still nations to be discipled. Our own is in great need even now as we speak. Which is why I'm reminding you of these things today. It will not happen apart from you and from me and the everyday choices we make. Where we choose to invest our time, our talent, our treasure... That's important. Where we, we are living for something greater than ourselves, you have to realize this. You exist and you live for something greater than yourself. And that's true whether we realize it or not. As believers in Jesus Christ, we of all people should realize this. And we should live accordingly. We should live for His glory in all things. We should live like our lives make a difference because our lives do make a difference. Your obedience makes a difference. Your disobedience makes a difference. From the smallest of us to the oldest of us. It doesn't matter how great your sphere of influence is. If you're a child of God, that's all the influence you need. Your prayers are more powerful than the people who work on Wall Street, than the people who work in the halls of government, your prayers have access to the creator of heaven and earth. Don't minimize that. Don't think you're nothing with no impact. You are a something, and the impact you have is exactly what God has given to you. God has put his spirit in you. The very same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is in you. And that spirit gives you access to the very throne of grace. 
And we should be on our faces crying out to God right now to have mercy on our nation because I'm telling you what, we're going to find out in just a few weeks whether God has had mercy on our nation or not. And a month from now is not the time to get serious about praying. If you haven't been serious about praying for our nation, you better get serious right now. Whether we have tens of millions and more babies killed over the course of decades or whether we can see that stopped is going to be greatly determined by the things that are going to happen in the next few weeks. Your simple obedience or your tragic disobedience could make all the difference. Don't think that it can't. We are the church, the redeemed of the Lord. We have power. We have influence. Because we have Christ in us, the hope of glory. Don't lose hope. Be hopeful. Don't be pessimistic. Be optimistic. God's got a plan. We might not know what it is right now, but he's got one. And whatever it is, it's his plan, which means it's good. Whether it's pleasant or whether it's painful, we'll find out. But his grace will carry us. Amen. And it is to the table of grace that we come. Table of grace that we come to each week to give thanks to him for the grace given to us in Jesus Christ. So church, as you trust in Jesus, as you look to Jesus, come to this table. Thank him for the body. Thank him for the blood. Welcome to Jesus. Let's stand. You know, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says it's been given to the church to make known the powers and principalities, the manifold wisdom of God. And I think about coming to this table every week, and I've had people tell me, well, I, I don't take communion because I don't want it to become, uh, you know, something that becomes meaningless to me. So I only take it on special occasions so it preserves the meaning. That's really a sinful attitude. Because this table, we're not proclaiming us and the meaning it has for us. We're proclaiming Christ. And when we proclaim the body and the blood of Christ, we are proclaiming to principalities and to powers. Forget what you might think about it. We know what the enemy thinks. We know what the powers and the principalities think. And every time we come to this table and proclaim the blood of Jesus, the body of Jesus, we are reminding powers and principalities, rulers of darkness, that they are defeated. That the body of Christ sacrificed, the blood of Christ poured out, has sealed their defeat, and has given to the church the victory. This is why we are a hopeful people this is why your obedience counts. This is why what you do and what you don't do matters. This is why we are commanded to obey Christ. This is why we don't go forth and ask people to believe. We go forth and command people to believe because that's what Jesus commands us to do. Because we're not waiting to find out whether Jesus is Lord or not. 
We're not waiting to find out whether he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords, ruling over the kings of the earth. We're not waiting to see how the story ends. It's, it's already a done deal. And we go out and we proclaim through our obedience to Christ his victory, just like we proclaim it at this table every week. Go out, church, and make a difference. Change the world. Get your eyes off the big things and start paying attention to the little things. And let God take the little things, the small measures of obedience in your life, and let him turn those into great things, the great things that he will create and build for his glory. Go change the world. Go obey Christ and give him glory through a life surrendered to him and make a difference in your life, in the lives of those around you, and in the life of our nation and in the life of his church. Amen.